This is the Campus Hoops Podcast. We're back again, Eric. Uh, this is Ian in studio. Uh, we've been away for two weeks almost. Uh, hectic holiday schedules. Um, but, you know, we're very excited to be back. Uh, even going to introduce a new segment today. Uh, but, Eric, uh, how's, how's your holiday prep been going? I know you just got back from a trip, right? Yeah, I did. just got back from California with the team that I'm on staff for. Uh, we had a really good trip, man. It was uh, six days out in the San Diego area out west. Uh, just had a really good time uh, on the court and off the court. Team bonding was, was well. It was uh, 20, 20 people under one roof um, and a big Airbnb. And those trips are really cool and unique uh, no matter what level of college basketball you're at. Not only is it a time to get away and play, play some competition, but just to be able to get to know your guys better and that kind of stuff just help us the chemistry and uh, the future of your program overall. So really good trip. The weather was amazing. High sixties every day uh, in December. And as much as I liked it out there, I was ready to get back because from where I'm from here in Indiana, when it's that warm in December, it, it freaks you out a little bit. I need a little bit of coldness and snow when it comes to Christmas time. Yeah, that's that's definitely the California dream, and not a lot of us get to experience that. But it's it's funny you say that because you being from Texas, I tolerate the heat and hate the cold, and it sounds like you're the exact opposite. So. I don't love the cold, but once it comes to December, I if it'll it's a little weird when I don't see some snow or some temperature in the 40s or below. <laughs> yeah, no, we're we're uh, very bipolar here in Texas with our weather. Get 30 days and then 80, you know, so. We don't know what cold is. I'd say that's a good thing overall, to be honest. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, we, we like snow or experiencing snow, but we don't want to have tons of it around and, and perpetually staying there. We don't know how to drive, to be honest. But Right. In Indiana, though, <laughs> the snow means you're in the thick of basketball season, so I will say that does play a little bit into it as well. well that's a positive. For exactly. Sure. And by the way, I saw the Pacers playing the Raptors tonight. They are wearing the uh, old retro Hickory uniform. So shout out to Indiana. Yep. Yes, sir. Hoosier State. <laughs> but we have a lot to get into. We're bringing back uh, our news roundup, uh, getting into our game of the week, which we didn't really get to touch on uh, from our last episode, the Michigan-Oregon game, which was a stellar stellar outcome. Uh, one point win for the Ducks. Uh Unfortunately, we don't get to, to recap that. It's probably too far back for everybody. But um, this week, we're headed for a huge rivalry game uh, in college basketball. Unfortunately, it's not a top 10 matchup anymore, but Louisville travels to Kentucky right across the border there. Uh, sorry, in-state. That's in-state. Uh, don't know my geography well <laughs> enough, I guess. <laughs> but but uh, that's a, a big-time matchup. And then, of course, we're going to get into our new segment, unveiling that today, uh, which for now we're calling Call Your Shot, uh, you know, and seeing if uh, which, which side of, of uh, an opinion or pick them, if you will, we're going to take in, in uh, evaluating many things in the college basketball world. Uh, but, Eric, you know, there's, there's always news in college basketball and always things to talk about, but this week, uh, was super busy with news. Um, starting out, you know, the it, it seems like the theme of the season so far is it's extremely dangerous to be number one seed. Typically, you know, everyone puts a target on the back of that team. But this year, we've already lost uh, five number one seeds have lost in six weeks of play. Yeah, what a, what a start to the season for sure. And uh, for all the just fans of the game, you gotta, you gotta love the up and down so far of this season. And uh, if you're a fan of one of those teams though, maybe, maybe not so much, but what a, yeah, what a just competitive start to the season we've had ups and downs. No team really just fully can stick out as the best team in the nation. And uh, as, as it should or shouldn't be, it's, it is good in a way for these teams because these losses this early in the year, don't don't hold a huge a huge bar in uh, what ends up happening in March and April. So, uh, from the fan perspective, what a what a time! But 
at the same time, you got to wonder, will a team come up or will it just make March and April that much more exciting? Because we're really going to have zero clue who ends up being the number one team when it's all said and done. But yeah, great, great action that we've had so far. And these, these teams, we know they're obviously talented and uh, it's, it's, Good or bad, or whatever way you want to look at it, I think um, the number one seed, I've said this before, but it doesn't play a huge role right now. But, of course, if you can be that, you want to be that, and it looks great for your program. But great action so far. We can't really ask for anything else uh, from being, especially being guys that do a podcast just on college basketball. It gives a lot more topics to talk about and uh, people, to, people to talk about. So it's been exciting for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So that was the fifth loss of the season for a number one team. Three have been on the road or neutral floor. Three have been to unranked teams. Four have been by seven points or less. And, you know, we're, we're down to an average time for number ones holding on to that spot of eight days. So uh, Louisville and Duke are the only teams to make it further than a week. It's, it's really astounding stuff. Yeah, it's, those stats are just unbelievable actually and this early in the year like I said it's it's hard to really judge teams but it definitely makes you want to sway your opinion on them and especially like you said some of those um, a couple at home and then I think half uh, to teams that were unranked so you're almost thinking are those teams already getting uh, lazy and lackadaisical and um, are they suffice sufficient with where their season is and they're just so confident already that what's that going to look like come March or April because uh, motivating guys at the college level at between 18 and 22 years old can can be a struggle. But the best coaches around the nation are the ones that can do that the best and figure that out. And the best ones also know like, it's early. So I think the, the, the coaches definitely aren't in panic mode by any means at this point, but it definitely plays a role uh, into what your season looks like and what it could look like getting into if we get out of um, the New Year's. Right. And and it's obviously, you know, these numbers are largely inflated because Michigan State lost to number two, Kentucky. Uh, Kansas lost by one on the road to number 18, Villanova. So it's it's really hard to, to warrant those picks and say, you know, these are terrible losses. Thought in the back of your mind probably of Coach Cal that he's going to have a young man every single year early in the season. Uh, the team coming in, Evansville has nothing to lose and everything to gain, especially in a game like that. And them winning or losing that game mean nothing really. They have nothing on their back. As we're in Kentucky, if you lose that game, like I said, with, you have so many freshmen, you're playing five, six guys their first year. Kind of just like, well, we're going to have to fix this or it's not going to look well during the season. But hopefully that's a just a lesson quickly that those guys learn that every team is – is going to come in to play the best you can play against our and what we've done in the past. So they're going to have to play their best the rest of the year on hour. It's not going to go as expected uh, for the Wildcats. It's it's definitely something we're going to have to watch. And, and those teams are going to have tough schedules moving forward. So we'll get plenty of opportunity to see if they can regain that number one spot or if they fall even further. Uh, the new number one release today was Gonzaga. They probably are only one of two or three teams that have stayed within the top 10 all season long. Uh, and at this point, you know, I have no problem going to the new number one. They've, they've been incredibly consistent. Um, and either they put teams away uh, with the exception of Michigan. And personally, that's lost some flair just because of losing a couple, albeit to some of the teams that we've talked about already, uh, as well as Louisville talking about today. So, you know, there's there's a lot to figure out, and I don't want to over a ton of stuff at this point, but um, it certainly makes for great headlines. Now, and I'm excited uh, uh, for our game of the week this week. Two talented teams that I think have a lot of potential. And uh, Louisville, like we said, was unblemished until that 13-point Texas Tech loss. And But the thing about that is that Texas Tech team was coming off a rough skid. Of, I know at one point they lost three in a row. Um, and – so that's a, it's an interesting loss, but I'm curious to see how Louisville bounces uh, back. And they already have, obviously, with two demanding wins, both at home over teams that they should have definitely uh, beaten by 20-plus. But they did. They took care of business, and now they're on to the next one. So this Kentucky game is definitely their next true test, and it's going to be a good one.
can't wait to get to that in a little bit. But our, our next huge piece of news was James Weissman. Uh, we talked about this, you know, ridiculous saga all throughout the season or, or what feels like. But Weissman has decided to leave the university, leave the basketball team, no longer enrolled there. And he's going to spend the rest of the season training for the NBA draft. Uh, he was due to return on January 12th uh, in conference play. Uh, but Eric, you know, for, for me, this is such a, a sad ending, you know, not necessarily for his future, but what could have been for the team. What could... Yeah, and I'm just going to be blunt on this. Obviously, if you're a Memphis fan, you're extremely upset. But college basketball fans in general deserve to be very pissed off about this. And so am I. And I think if we're all being honest, we all should be, and this is just terrible for college basketball. And if anything, this should make some change occur uh, in some way. I think this is a boatload of crap. Um, I'm not disagreeing with Wiseman leaving, but him doing that is, I think, is a in a way an FU to the NCAA and kind of just saying, like, what are you guys doing? You're, this is, you're ruining the game. This is – I don't have to – Maybe not the number one pick now, but definitely a top five for sure. I'm assuming if he stays with his plan, and I'm sure he's going to get in the top-notch skill development and training that he needs. And in those few games he did play, we saw the potential that he has. But it's just for the basketball as a whole um, and the whole NCAA. So, I don't know. I know Jay Billis is famous for always going off on the NCAA, and I'm definitely not as uh, educated on him as on all the rules and – there's, I know, there are a million rules that I don't that I don't know of, but this really this really sucks as a college basketball fan. Not only just Memphis fans. I have no correlation to Memphis, no relation. I could care less, honestly, how they do. But just as a fan and as wanting to watch, I think this is terrible for NCAA basketball as a whole. And I think things should be done. And I, I would I'd be surprised if things weren't done in some shape or form uh, in the next couple of years to stop this from happening because college basketball. I mean, they don't want these players to leave, obviously. So, that, what are they going to do for it not to happen? And there's so much backstory to this, but just a just a bad situation overall, I think, for the whole look of NCAA basketball. And honestly, it looks bad on Memphis, whether they really did anything illegal. Bad for everybody, honestly, and it sucks. Yeah, and and uh, you know, my my biggest question, you know, he only has three games on his resume against collegiate level players you know what kind of impact does that have on his draft status uh, he finished his career with 19.7 points per game 10.7 rebounds and uh, you know an insane three blocks per game those games were against Illinois Chicago uh, and Texas Southern I believe so huge competition but he did get in foul trouble against Oregon and still put up 14 and 12 so for me I'm fine with him having three games if I'm NBA GM, you know, you know, top five pick potential. So what what do you see as the consequences of his decision or if any, uh, you know, for leaving after only three games? To him personally, I think he has every right to make the decision that he feels is best for him. And I don't think he'll really be diminished too much by this, or at least he shouldn't be. I think if he still doesn't go in the top five in the draft, uh, barring obviously an injury or uh, more happenings of this um, or if any more trouble he should get into for whatever reason. I think if he doesn't go in the top five, still five teams, franchises made a poor decision, a very poor decision that will get looked back upon. Um, not to the, not to the level maybe of Jeff Curry dropping to seven and going uh, behind two players at his own position, but, that sort of maybe a little less, but I think my point is James Wiseman will be an impact player in the NBA, I believe. I think he plays both sides of the ball at an extremely high level. He has a good motor. He can face up, stretch the floor, back to the basket. He just has it all. His body's ready for the NBA. He's built for the NBA. I think a team's going to get a gym in him, uh, whatever team that happens to be and that has the need of that. And, shoot, speaking of Steph Curry, he might be his teammate. Decided to go that way with the pick, so – Nonetheless, I think Wiseman is able to make his own decision, and I'm sure him and Coach Hardaway sat down and talked about this with his family, obviously, and everything. And I doubt this was a shocker to Penny Hardaway. I'm sure conversations happened 
uh, before all this came out. So I don't want to say, I don't think there's any negative towards him at all about it. Very unfortunate. And he went there to play basketball and they're going to tell him to sit out for almost half the year, over a third of the year. That's, that's just tough to hear as a 18 year old where you want to play basketball and get better. He just kind of wants to get it out of the way and stop thinking about it and just focus on him now in a, in a selfish way, but it's hard to really call him too selfish for it because at the end of the day, his main goal and where he wants to be is at the NBA level and uh, being a high priority pick in the draft. And that's where he's headed, I think. So good for him. And I wish him the best of luck. And I can't wait to see him back on the court, honestly. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with his, his decision. Not that cares about my opinion, but, uh, you know, I think he got absolutely screwed by the NCAA. And I agree, he missed it half the season. You know, what's the point in him being there? He's not going to get challenged enough. Uh, just in practice to, to, you know, help himself so he might as well train and get the best chance of that pick as he can. Uh, as you mentioned, with Steph Curry and the Warriors having him shot at number one, that's such a scary thought for me. And, you know, they have a chance at Limitless Ball or Anthony Edwards, whoever they want. But just putting him next to Draymond is a scary thought for me. Um, and for, for anybody concerned about the long-term success of the Memphis program without him, uh, I feel like you don't need to worry. They're eight no. They beat Tennessee by four, NC State by five, Ole Miss by one. Uh, they showed they can play slow. They can play up tempo. Uh, this team's still extremely talented, well coached, uh, but they do have quite the gauntlet in different uh, UConn, SMU, Cincinnati, Wichita State, and South Florida all twice. Temple once, Georgia once. So. Uh, Georgia is out of conference, but, you know, they, they still have chances to build a resume and also have some questionable losses. So it's a really intriguing situation all around to, to pay attention to moving forward. But, uh, you know, one of our steps earlier in the year, Memphis, Oregon, for the PK-80 Invitational, we didn't get to see this matchup uh, between Placement and, and Folly Don for the Ducks. Uh, Don received eligibility clearance and is now with the team. Uh, he's played in two games uh, against Montana. Uh, I forget who the other one at, is at this moment. Uh, Texas Southern, actually, but he's averaging 12 and a half minutes per game. They're bringing him along slowly, just under nine points a game, three rebounds. But, you know, he's made some key plays already to show his athleticism, his potential. Um, knowing what we know about already, Eric, you know, what do you see positively for this team moving forward. Yeah, this is a huge get for the Oregon Ducks team and getting him back on the court. And I think I've been saying to you on this podcast and to everyone, I think this is the guy that Oregon is missing to take that next step and to be an elite, um, well, elite eight, final four contender come the tournament. I think it's that five man that can protect the rim run the floor and just alter shots down low. I think they got they obviously already got Pritchard at the point uh, that can run things. The top player in the country, tough as nails. You got Mathis alongside him, the running mate in the backcourt. Uh, strokes are from the three. Um, Justin is the forward they have that's a versatile guy that can get it done on both ends of the court. So I think this is going to be a guy that, like you said, they're going to put him in short spurts, get his confidence up, get his stamina up. But I think if this team stays healthy and they keep going on, once they get to conference tournament, it's all going to mesh together. They're going to be at their peak, and they're going to be a problem going into the conference and national tournament. So I'm very looking. I'm looking very much looking forward to this Oregon team at full strength uh, with Dana Altman coaching them up and seeing what they can do with a with a trio or not even a trio, just a team of guys like. Pritchard, Mathis, Dante, you got, you got a mix of veterans with the rookies, but the rookies are extremely talented uh, freshmen. So it'll be a very fun team to watch in the next uh, two, three months. And as we get into the tournament. The, the scary thing for me, Eric, is, uh, you know, I saw a, a highlight of him against Montana. He received the ball in the post and, uh, took one huge dribble towards the middle of the floor and had a one-handed pass to an open shooter on the perimeter. And nobody had enough time to close. So for a big guy with vision like that and range, this is such a big wrinkle for Oregon, especially having, you know, faced all of the big hitters in the early season. Heading into conference, no team has tape on him, really. 
uh, you know, playing 12 minutes against smaller teams with all due respect to them. You know, this is such an, an, an enigma for, for Oregon moving forward that, that teams are going to have a tough time handling, you know, even regardless if they keep Okoro at the starting spot, bring Dante off the, the bench, they don't have to force him through heavy minutes early and they can still be just as dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. And you think about that, they, Oregon often truly has a back to the basket post player per se, or a guy that they can just throw it into and kind of tell him to get out the way and go to work. And if you can get him and develop him into that role and get him the confidence to do that, you have a guy like that. You're going to have to decide, am I going to go double team off of a guy like Mathis or Pritchard? 40% Mathis currently at 51%, Pritchard at 41 uh, are you going to go double off one of those guys, or are you going to let Dante beat you, who has the capabilities and can also pass out with the double team if you do? So I think the one-two punch controlling the paint is one of my biggest things uh, in, in coaching period in basketball is winning the paint battle. That's points in the paint. That's rebounds. That's block shots. Just controlling a lot of that is huge. And if you can win that paint battle and play from the inside out, this Oregon could be deadly because, like I said, they're shooting 41% from the three. They don't turn it over often. They're an unselfish group. It's coached extremely well. And like I said, they just have talent one through five up and down the board. They have they have guys that are capable of making plays and just, just they have depth too. They have eight guys that I think eight or nine guys that consistently make an impact on the game. And once they get all them meshed together and the chemistry lines up, I think it's just going to be a tough team to guard, uh, period. I think if they, if they can end up figuring it out on the defensive end and letting their defense run to their offense, then this team's going to be legit. I feel like it's kind of been my, not sleeper team, but a team that I'm secretly a fan of that I won't really express uh, anywhere else but the podcast. But I just think this team has a lot of potential, and this is just the top. I think the thing that's going to take them over the edge once he gets back into full shape. And just pairing him, like I said, with Pritchard can be just such a fun duo to look forward to going into these uh, conference games. I, I view it in, in this respect, but I'm curious how you Memphis losing theirs and still being number nine with Wiseman. Do you feel like it's the same level of positive impact for Dante joining this Oregon team? Compared to Wiseman leaving, you're saying, or well, well, I mean, comparing Memphis with and without Wiseman in their capacity with Dante for the Ducks. Um, so kind of just the two teams. I, I think Oregon – well, first off, I think Memphis drops down. I think they stay in the top 25 at the end of the year, but I think they are low 20s. Like you said, they have a tough conference schedule playing those five teams that you stated twice are at the top of that conference. And then I think for them the biggest thing is going to be – the focus turns to press Sachua. And back when we talked earlier and we had him for the game of the week, we kind of talked about his aggressiveness and him looking to score more. And he's going to have to do that for this Memphis team to stay on the radar and to stay in that top 25. But I think this Oregon team definitely is better without with, – if Memphis doesn't have Wiseman, Oregon definitely becomes a better team. And I think it's not as close as some people may think. So I think the, getting Dante is a huge, obviously – bonus I'm not going to say he has the same impact as Wiseman per se I'm not exactly sure how to interpret the question to be honest but hopefully that kind of gave a decent gauge <laughs> no you're good I'm obviously not describing it well enough my I, my thinking on it at least is that you know Oregon's already proven that they've been a successful team without having that dominant post presence um you know and, and Memphis is kind of survived without Wiseman. You know, they've had some close games. They've still been top opponent. Uh, now, with Oregon adding in that dominant guy where, as you said, are they going to have to decide to double him in the post to stop him? Are they going to have to stick to their guns and let him control the paint to stop the perimeter shooting? You know, it, it elevates the Ducks even more, which is unfathomable because they're already at number six. So, uh, I think it's just something to watch. You know, we, we don't know a lot about Dante's play yet, aside from what he did in high school. But uh, it can be, you know, absolutely huge for this Oregon team moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I actually difference in them being a, being a great team and a good team and having that 
paint presence slash threat is a is a big deal. He wins you games down late in the stretch. So yeah, I, I don't think now anyone thinks he, he's going to have an impact like Wiseman does. But Memphis will have to definitely figure out who is going to be the new guy that scores it in the paint for them and who they can run the offense through as to where Oregon now is going to have multiple options where they can score from the outside, score from the inside, and teams are going to have to figure out, well, they're all good options, so which one do we have to take away in order to beat them? Hopefully they're just off on this this um, certain category offensively tonight. So it's going to be an exciting thing to watch going forward. Absolutely. Eric, this last bit of news has to uh, eat directly at your heart. Uh, North Carolina point guard, freshman, McDonald's All-American, player of the year candidate Cole Anthony is out four to six weeks with a knee injury. Not entirely positive how exactly the injury happened, if it was in practice or, you know, uh, something nagging after a game. But uh, like I said, out four to six weeks and and the the drop-off for the Tar Heels here is serious. Yeah, obviously, no question about it. Couldn't pick a worse guy on the Cardinal team to have an injury that leaves him out uh, for a long period of time. In this case, like you said, a month to a month and a half right now. And a fan of the game, period, you got to think, especially as a Tar Heel fan, you just got to wonder, is he going to pull that Wiseman card? And obviously, it's a different situation, but is he going to just say, I'm better off to go worry about myself after this? And maybe that will depend on how they're, uh, season fares while he's out. Uh, nonetheless, a devastating blow to this Tar Heel team. It definitely puts their floor while he's gone to a much lower level uh, than expected in their ceiling as well. They're going to have to rely way more heavily now on the big men, Brooks and Baycott, and assuming Baycott stays healthy as well after dealing with he's already had this year. Um, not only him, Leaky Black, Brandon Robinson, both have faced injuries, and all four of those guys are starters. So this UNC team really needs to stay healthy. Uh, the rest of the way for sure. And I'm curious to see what Coin Anthony's final decision is on what he does. Obviously, it plays a huge role, but he's he's a projected top five pick. And if the draft was tomorrow, I'm going to guarantee he's probably going in the top ten at the latest. And I've, everything I've seen leads to the top five. So, it's, uh, hopefully, by the time being, uh, the freshman guards that just came back from injury, luckily for this team, Anthony Harrison, Jeremiah Francis can step in and fill the fill the void somewhat until they get back. But like I said, other guys are going to have to step up, and this team's they can't uh, have another injury happen or this team's going to go to shambles, in my opinion, if it doesn't already with Corey Anthony being out. So definitely a little nerve-wracking time to be a Tar Heel fan, but you'd like to see him compete for the most part as they have. Uh, obviously lost to a Gonzaga team, but I'm thinking, uh, and then just playing the other teams tough and taking care of business uh, other than that so far. But dropping out of top 25, that's a very crazy thing for a Roy Williams coach UNC team. So I'm, t- I'm excited to see the battle that this team has. And I know uh, they have leaders on this team, not as many, but guys that have been there before and done it. And hopefully they can, uh, them along with Roy Williams, of course, can, do his magic stuff and lead them back on the right track getting into this ACC play. Yeah, it's 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 a big question mark for them. You know, being the ACC, it's going to be incredibly difficult for this team to adjust and stay consistent enough to succeed. And, you know, there's obvious question marks about is this team even worthy of the NIP, let alone NCAA tournament. Uh, but, you know, there's – there's some potential positives here. I mean, losing Cole Anthony is not something that you want out of any team. It's obviously not going to benefit you. It's hard to replace a guy like that. Uh, Jeremiah Francis and Anthony Harris being back to their Gonzaga game, despite losing by 13 on the road. Uh, you know, I think they performed well, and they've, they've uh, done a good job in the, the game since then uh, in being consistent, but some some positive aspects for this team or that you know they're they're good distributors good shot creators for the team in general so everyone's going to get involved and that helps the team instead of having Cole Anthony who I hate to say you know may detract from everybody a little bit not because of his ability or anything like that but you know he's he's definitely a ball in the hands kind of player uh, on the offensive end and, and it may 
hurt the rest of the team in terms of their, their shooting rhythm. Uh, something I saw is that with Cole, they had 72.9 possessions per game. Uh, they're already up to 74.7, 78 in the last two games. Uh, you know, so the, the typical identity of a Carolina team with the up-tempo pace and, and pushing the ball up the court to get easy layups is something that seems to be taking a little more uh, structure, you know, with without him. So it, it'll definitely be interesting. You know, health is the obvious concern, but Eric, if, if this team can resemble what they have in years past and, and you know, regain some of that success. Yeah, and like you said, to the possession number, I think that's a great thing. And I'm sure that's a Roy Williams stated thing because I'm sure his thought process is, well, if we're going to be our best player and a top 10 player in the country, then we need to try and get easier, quicker buckets at the rim. So I'm sure there's even more of an emphasis that get the ball up the court as to where when he had Quinn Anthony bringing it up, he probably trusted Cole, even though he's a freshman, just with his talent level, he's kind of a guy where you throw him out there and you're like, you're going to learn from your mistakes and you're going to play through them and control the possession and control the pace. So you, you do that. But now with these other freshmen coming in, Harris and Francis, I'm sure there's more emphasis on getting out and going and getting quicker, easier shots. That way they don't, they don't have to sit in the half court eye on one-on-one um, and guys that are just shot makers become shot creators because everyone can't do that, obviously. So really curious to see how that ends up going. I think that's a good thing for Roy. Another, not a positive, but just a good thing for the Star Hill team is their next four games are all at home. And uh, one last tune-up before conference play, and then three at home against three teams not ranked. So Georgia Tech, Pittsburgh, and Clemson, they all get at home, unranked, winnable games that can give them off to a, it'd be a 4-1 and one start in conference. And then they go at Pittsburgh, who, uh, again, isn't a great, highly ranked team and probably one of the lesser talented teams uh, coached by Jeff Capel in, in the ACC. I think he was doing good things, but Pittsburgh just really not there yet talent-wise to match up. So I think their schedule definitely benefits the timing of this injury. So I'm curious to see how it goes. But I think early on we can see and we'll be able to tell what will this team truly look like without sensational guard Cole Anthony. Yeah, and uh, that that Yale game is interesting to me. They're they're a tough veteran squad, so that may be a upset pick for me later. I'm gonna have to look at that. Uh, but you know, with without Cole, uh, looking at Carolina's record over the last I don't know 20, 30 years, uh, this this may be the worst season since Roy Williams started being the coach at UNC. Uh, in his first year, he was nineteen eleven. Matt Doherty was the coach before that in 1916. Uh, Roy Williams' team made it to the tournament. Doherty's did not. But I would not be surprised to see that team, it, you know, if they struggle even to reach that mark, if Polanski does not come back. Uh, but, you know, Eric, one, one last quick thing. What do you think the probability is of Cole coming back versus doing what James Weissman did and leaving for the NBA because of the injury and, and maintaining his health? Uh, at this point right now, I'm going to throw it up in the air and say it's a coin flip. I think it's a 50-50. I think it relies heavily on two things, and they're obvious things, but relies on his recovery and how it goes because obviously at this point he's going to be extremely focused as, long, as well as the athletic training staff um, on getting him back to full health. And the second thing being just the success of the team while he's out. Because like you said, if this team is headed for the NIT and he sees that, as selfish as it might seem, I don't know if he really wants to risk it playing for an NIT championship. Because I, my guess is that Cole's goal wasn't to be the NIT champion. It was probably greater than that. And he had NCAA championship aspirations when he came in. So I think it relies on those two things. I think the Length, he's already out, makes me nervous that he is going to be done. But at the same time, I think he is very well respected and has respect for those guys on that Sargill team uh, that are ahead of him in terms of obviously grade and the, the guys that are leading him. So I think if he gets back healthy and feels comfortable and this team's in a good spot where they're still competitive and have a chance to do some NCAA national tournament, then I think he comes back. So right now I'll put out a coin flip 50-50. Okay. Yeah, and, and if if his recovery is on time, he's looking to come back maybe mid-January. 
Um, and hopefully he does come back. I'd love to see him in that uniform again. To the mid-January, there, January 18th is that game at Pittsburgh. So that's the next five games they have. So once again, Yale, Georgia Tech, Pittsburgh, Clemson all at home, and then at Pittsburgh, and the next game is at Virginia Tech on the 22nd. So like I said, that schedule is definitely favorable for them. So if he can return actually by the mid to late January, I think they can be in a good spot, and hopefully he can be back and help them make a push. I hope so, man. Um, so that that closes uh news segments, and I, you know, definitely looking back at it, that was more of a depressing news segment today than than we usually have. <laughs> uh, but moving to our game of the week, Louisville. Uh, you know, and, and and a lot of of hype goes into this game. You know, even when both teams aren't playing well, but. Seeing as Louisville's number three and Kentucky's just outside the top ten trying to find their identity, I think there's a lot riding on this game. Yeah, this is – I think both teams feel like they need a, a statement win, honestly, with this one early in the year. Like I was referring to earlier with Louisville, their last loss and only loss in the year was to Texas Tech. But since then, they've played two teams in Eastern Kentucky and Miami of Ohio, both at the Yum Center at home where they were supposed to win by 20-plus, and they did. They took care of business, but this is their first game since that loss to Texas Tech that is against the top 20 team in the country. Obviously, a blue blood in Kentucky and a team that they know if they beat, they can quickly be right back on the map and up in that, fighting for that number one spot. And then on the other side of things, Kentucky, their last win came against a Georgia Tech team by 14 at home, and then they're coming off two losses, one to Utah, which was in an upset neutral court by three, and then – uh, a six-point loss on neutral court to Ohio State, who I think Ohio State is currently uh, the best team in the country, which I don't want to speak on that too much. But that six-point loss, I think, is a closer game than I expected it to be, honestly, against against the Buckeyes. So, um, like I said, though, obviously Kentucky two losses in a row really needs a win bad to get back on track. Louisville looking for that demanding, uh, confident win headed into their conference play so both teams playing for a lot here it's gonna be really exciting yeah I, I you know that Utah game was quite a shocker but uh with with this team being so young I I definitely feel that they were looking ahead to Ohio State and the, the success that the Buckeyes have had this year but in in general uh Kentucky's played fairly well in, in the big time games you know beating Michigan State opener Spartans definitely have questions of their own so that can't uh, without saying, but you know, Ohio State's pretty much torched everybody they've played this year, and, and to stay within six neutral floors is, is pretty significant for them. Uh, you know, they they did a great job specifically against Ohio State. Ohio State, you know, settled into a two-three zone to try to make Kentucky uh, shoot the three over them, and and they did a great job of that. But they they ran a play where. Um, Nate Sestina, the center transfer, you know, would screen one of the two at the top of the zone. Uh, and whoever the ball handler was, I believe usually he would come off the screen and Sestina would pop and he'd be all alone at the top of the three-point line. And he made a number in that game. And that was just their bread and butter. So for, for me, that's definitely something that's going to be interesting to see how Louisville attacks that. Um, as we saw earlier, specifically against Michigan, uh, Louisville had a great game plan for stopping Zav Simpson and uh, you know, was really able to derail Michigan's offense. So um, I'm looking for something like that from Chris Mack and seeing what he does to adjust. You know, now that's definitely not on film. Uh, and I'm sure Kentucky's been doing it all year long, but um, this is a great chess match between Chris Mack and, and Calipari. Yeah, absolutely, and I think uh, Coach Holman of the Buckeyes made a great in-game adjustment there going to zone against Kentucky, and one of the biggest things that I have uh, for Kentucky kind of while losses have been coming coming up um, is their shooting. They're currently, as a team, shooting uh, like 30 – no, 27, 28% from three, and you look at this team and they're built around their guards and their guards carrying a bulk of the scoring for them and shooting. But you look through this, Ashton Hagens, I know he's not known as a big three-point shooter, 
28% from three. Tyrese Maxey, 25% from three. Emmanuel quickly, 31, which is one of the highest on the team. Um, and then their best percentage shooter is the guy that you were just talking about, uh, and Nate Sestina. He wasn't even supposed to be one of the key big men, I would say, for this team this year. When you look at uh, Nick Roach and Montgomery, who both, I would say, have been underwhelming as well. And I think that's a partly where Kentucky's problems lie right now is they are so dependent on their their backcourt and them getting things done and creating shots and making shots that they don't have a consistent guy that they can go down to um, in the low block and and score for them and be a threat. Nick Richards has got a lot of so far this year because he's dominated mid-major school, but then he goes up against a – uh, power five caliber big man, and he kind of he kind of fades away and doesn't show up. And the thing about it is, too, with Sestina shooting at such a good rate, thirty eight percent, but being the only person on their team that is shooting at such a high rate, he almost has to be on the court right now for these for this Wildcats team to be at their best because no one else can consistently knock a shot down. So very interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what Calipari does with the the matchups and the lineups going into this game, but I'm telling you what, 28% from the field, from the three-point line isn't going to get them very far because I don't think by any means are they an elite defensive team. I think they're okay, but I don't think they're going to be able to get away with shooting that poorly um, throughout, especially for this game and then going on into SEC play. So I'll be very curious to see how this group of guards comes back and uh, what what the lineups and matchups look like for this game. Yeah, that 27.8% mark from three is good enough for 323rd best in the nation for three-point percentage. So really poor, but, you know, a little bit of a saving grace there for Kentucky is that they're 349th in the nation in terms of relying on three-pointers. So 17.9% of their offensive looks or shots come from three, which isn't too bad. You know, they, they know what they need to do. Um, their, their three-headed monster in the backcourt does a great job of penetrating defense, getting lane, either to use floaters or get to uh, get to the backboard and uh, you know hit layups or pass off to Nick Richards and uh, Jay Montgomery. But uh, Louisville, I feel like, is going to find a way to force them to take threes, and they're 14th best in the nation, allowing 26.7% on threes. Uh, you know, if, if they can shut down Xavier Simpson – a way to get the whole team collectively to, to make him look, uh, you know, not composed and make him look uh, to struggle. You know, I, I absolutely feel that the can do that in this game. Uh, I, I have to say, Eric, I feel like, you know, Kentucky has really mismanaged the usage of Keon Brooks and Khalil Whitney. Uh, you know, they're averaging eight points a game, three and a half uh, field goals made and eight and a half attempt essentially versus power five teams um you know they've they've really fallen off in terms of their contribution but you know to to correct the the three-point issue in this game i feel like it's a real chance for johnny juzang to break out being the sharpshooter he is i'm not sure why he hasn't gotten more play aside from you know the stranglehold that and quickly have on that back. The interesting thing, I think, on the Kentucky side, like I've already talked about, is Kentucky's three-point shooting and their inability to do it so far. And that makes a lot of uh, Kentucky fans that I've seen just from social media and reading certain things that Johnny Juzang, who wasn't as highly talented or touted of a recruit as Whitney or Maxie was, but he was the best shooter of the group. And you got to wonder when will Coach Calipari pull the string and put Juzang in for longer minutes, more than his 11 that he's averaging right now, strictly because they need to be able to shoot the ball better. And I think if Kentucky continues to shoot the ball at this low of a rate, their defense is not good enough to make up for their lack of offense and perimeter shooting. Curious to see what Coach Calipari does with that. And uh, if he goes for guards with, with Maxie, Hagens, and Juzang and just plays them around one big. But if they do that, then you got to think, well, Richards and Montgomery minutes are both going to go down because I think Coach Cal at this point has to have Nate Sestina on the floor because he is their only consistent three-point shooter. So, and on the other end of that, you going to be their poster right now because a big help for them would be if somebody consistently 
get the ball in the paint and maybe not even consistently, but just sometimes score their back of the basket, then maybe require them to get better open looks from three. So obviously multiple angles, Coach Calipari can look at this, but I think the biggest thing for this team to be successful and take the next step is to get better shooting and more shooters on the court. So that'll be the thing I'm curious about in this game. Does Juzang see more minutes and how will they match up and what lineups will Calipari mess with during this one? So as, as we get into picking this game, does that mean you're fading Kentucky? I am not going to go with Kentucky. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm going to take Louisville in this one. I think they have the best player on the court in this game. I think they have the best team. Like I said, the lack of the lack of shooting for Kentucky, I think, isn't good. I don't think Kentucky has a true post player down low that has proven that they can score their back to the basket. On a side note, uh, a guy that I haven't really talked about, E.J. Montgomery, is a guy for Kentucky that n- not a lot of people talk about, but just because I don't think he really gets enough options. I mean, I know Kentucky doesn't post up a lot, but a small stat that I did find is when Montgomery does post up and shoot the ball, which has only been – 11 possessions on the year he is scoring at a 1.1 points per possession rate that's in the 93rd percentile in the country so maybe so but then again that just goes back to if they want more shooters on the floor are they going to have to go just one post guy so um, I think Kentucky has a lot of questions now that need figuring out and in a game against a team like Louisville I don't think Calipari is going to be comfortable I know that he's not sure about because if he puts them in for too long or puts the wrong one in, this could be a 20-point game by the time we know it, and Louisville's out the door with a huge win, and Kentucky's sitting on three losses in a row. So I got the Cardinals in this one by a good eight, ten points. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm not sold on a scoring margin just yet, but I, I agree in general that Louisville is a better team here. They have a much deeper team, um, much more experienced, and of being able to share the ball, they can hit you in so many ways that uh, you know if Kentucky can take away one option or Jordan Wara specifically, you know I think they're still going to be fine. They shot thirty eight percent against Michigan by double digits, so um, you know they they have ways to shut teams down. And for Kentucky still struggling to find their identity, I think that's just the biggest issue here. Uh, I think. Calipari has to throw some new wrinkle that we haven't seen much. And, you know, maybe that's Juzang, maybe it's something else. But, uh, heck, maybe we even see Nate Sestina on those pick-and-pop plays start uh, slipping the screen and, and hitting more for mid-range. But, uh, you know, maybe that's outside of his game right now. Uh, I, I just think Louisville is going to be too much. And, and uh, you know, it's going to be a rude awakening at Rupp Arena. But, um Kentucky's found ways to, to hang tough in, in the big games this year, so I'll, I'll be interested no matter what. Yeah, it's uh, going to be a fun game to watch no matter what. Like you said earlier, one of the best rivalries in college basketball in-state. Short trip, both teams needing a big win. I'm excited for this one, man. It's going to be a good one. So moving on to our call your shot segment, our very new segment. Um, we're trying to pose, you know, questions about players or teams and uh, you know, trying trying to break down uh, some some fun aspects of college basketball. And what kinds of things we can do with this? Uh, you know, of course, if you're hearing this, please you know give us suggestions or topics you'd want to put on the podcast. Uh, any questions or ideas you have, love to hear them. Uh, but Eric, I'll I'll go ahead and start with one I thought. Uh, you know, in the offseason, Mick Cronin left Cincinnati and went to UCLA. Uh, neither team is having entirely huge success uh, relatively to, I'm sure, what they expected or, uh, you know, how fair Cincinnati thought they were going to be even without Mick Cronin like their increase in talent. But do you think Cincinnati missing Mick Cronin more or is Mick Cronin missing Cincinnati? Uh, it's a good question, man. I think we're starting this off right with a, with a true toss up in my opinion. So I think Cincinnati, I think Mick Cronin was an amazing fit for Cincinnati. So I would, I would go more on the side that Cincinnati is missing Mick Cronin and what he 
what he did for that team. I think he got the most out of Jerron Cumberland, and he's a top scorer in the in the country, in my opinion. He's a very skilled guy, 6'6", 6'7", guard that can score on all three levels. I think they he got the most out of them defensively. I think things were were perfect for that Cincinnati, just the players and personnel that he had. And I think at CLA, he's more so – I think he has less talent and in a school that will probably have – high expectations relatively soon, but are not in a place right now to be super competitive. So I think that Cincinnati misses Mitt Cronin more. I would agree with you, but I'm probably, you know, like 51-49 or 52-48% for it. But I would say that I think UCLA still has more talent. It's just going to take time for them to understand his defensive philosophies. And I mean, and at the Maui Invitational, there's a lot of times where the, the team in general look lost on that end of the floor and figuring out how his matchup zone is, is supposed to work in terms of, you know, covering cutters or, you know, who's who's getting who on the floor. But uh, I think in, in time, yeah, Cincinnati will definitely be missing more. Yeah, new schemes obviously are always going to be difficult sometimes or take a little bit to – uh, get into those young, those young new players' heads. So it'll be interesting to see how that ends up. Uh, one for you now, coming back at you. I'm going to go the coach route to to kick to kick my time off. So uh, we'll say this is a situation you're in the national championship. Your teams are fairly even. So as far as skill level matchups, that kind of thing, it's even. What coach do you want – Coaching you in that game between Bill Self and Tony Bennett. Oh my. Uh, that's a really good one. Uh, I think if, we're great I, at this, man. Yeah, that's that's a, a really good one. Um, I, I think if the game is that close, I'm gonna go with Tony Bennett because I have such a respect for his. Uh, genius on the defensive end, being able to shut people down. You know, he he didn't necessarily completely shut down Zion and RJ Barrett last year when they had that team, but uh, you know, already this year they've held uh, multiple teams to forty-four points, uh, and and that despite losing a ton of offensive talent, and they're still winning games. I know they're dropping, but for for me, uh, I'm going to take Tony Bennett. Yeah, I'm on the same side as you on that. I think Tony Bennett – I think you give Tony Bennett one – I mean, if he's in the, in the national championship game, he probably has one guy that's a stud that can score for him, and he puts the other guys around them in his defensive scheme that it's just so unique and tough to play against that Bennett will come out on top of the X's and O's battles and, and that part of it, and that's – kind of crazy i feel like you asked this probably anytime for virginia wins the national championship uh last year that self is a unanimous decision on this so i just kind of i was i would put these two together also the fact that they both have won one national championship but one is obviously more proven winning coach of the year in the big 12 for however many so long and winning the big 12 to a coach that was just fresh off of the national championship. But I have a ton of respect for Tony Bennett and what he, how he coaches his guys. Uh, and I'm going with Ben as well in that. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's, it's not to say Bill Self's a, a terrible coach by any means. I think anybody who says that is, is out of their mind, obviously. But, um, you know, just it, it's just remarkable what he was able to do when he had guys buy into his system. It already with Juco guy. Uh, other transfers and, and freshmen that he has playing compared to the seniors. But, you know, I, I think Tony Bennett may have uh, done more with less talent. And I think that speaks volumes to his acumen to uh, lead his team and, and find ways to win. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, I, I definitely think it's close. Um, so, my next one for you, we've, we've already seen a couple of insane offensive performances from guys. Um, which do you feel is more surprising? Uh, Luca Garza getting 44 
from the center spot against Michigan or Alonzo Verge, who's a bench player for Arizona State, getting 43 of the team's 56 points and a loss to St. Mary's. <laughs> um, as impressive as Garza's was, I think in that situation, the way to beat a Michigan team, or not even, well, they didn't beat him actually, a way to actually win the battle against Teske is to bring him out. And Garza has not had a game like that before, but has shown games where he can score. It's not with Verge of Arizona State, a much more guy that people don't or haven't heard about, uh, and especially just the percentage of the points that he scored, uh, even in a loss, is it's nuts. So he, I don't think many people even have probably heard of him. I think he's under – definitely – maybe not under the radar, but no one – whatever have expected that to happen. So I, I would think as impressive as Garza's 44 was, I think Verge scoring 43 of 56 is more impressive. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And I think he was a Juco guy, so he's already, you know, been able to develop a little bit. Uh, and maybe he'll get more minutes now. But I think the crazy thing is uh, he was 18 to 29 floor, 6 to 6 from the free throw line. But – he didn't have any three-point makes in the game. Uh, you know, for, for Arizona State to struggle as a team that bad that they only get 13 points, that's like a one guy, and he's a guy off the bench. That's, it's insane. Um, you know, Luca Garza's 44. You don't see that much from, from bigs in college basketball anymore because the game's changed so much. Um, he is 17 of 32 with 13 free-throw attempts. So, I mean – he, he handled testing in that game, and he did a really good job. They had a great game plan for Ray McCaffrey, but, uh, you know, Verge's statistic is incredible. You, you I think that's even more rare than what Garza did. So, um, yeah, it's, it's unlikely we see that again this season. Yeah, for sure. My, uh, my next uh, situation for you is I'm staying on the coaching track. I thought early on, I, for some reason, I had coaches on my mind. So, this next one, you're a recruit. You're a highly touted recruit coming out of high school. And let's just say you have two offers. And we're going to put compared to where you are. Um, I wasn't going to, but I think if I don't, it's truly a toss-up 50-50 for me. So I'm going to put location on it. So it does matter. So you're coming out of high school. You have two offers. You have Gonzaga under Coach Mark Few. And you have Kentucky over under Coach Calipari. Uh, obviously two different kind of tactics within recruiting. Um, so I think two coaches obviously that are super successful and both are tier one coaches in my, in my ranks across the, across the board. So what are your, give me your thought process on that. And who, who are you going? You're going to, going to go Gonzaga or going to Kentucky? Oh, hands down. I'm going Gonzaga. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's not hard for me. Uh, you know, I, I, Love the Pacific Northwest uh, being outdoors. Not that Kentucky doesn't have great stuff. You know, I hear a lot of good stuff about that. Um, I think they're both in, in as a as a basketball player, they're they're great. Uh, both in terms of being able to concentrate on your craft. You know, they're they're not entirely huge cities. Uh, you know, Lexington's a fairly decent size, but it's not like uh, Dallas or. Annapolis, Atlanta, LA, you know, it's, it's nothing like that. Um, but I think guys that have gone to Gonzaga have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. There's definitely um, buying into a system there, which is something that I particularly like. Um, and being, being able to work towards proving yourself, whereas, I, I mean, Kentucky has that too, but I feel like your 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 expectations of a season and success are measured against the other greats of the program. Um, but but for me, I think I would definitely be more comfortable under Mark Few. Uh, I will say that Coach Cal, you know, from an outsider's perspective, treats all his players like family, um, and even seeing their uh, opening. Uh, Big Blue Madness game, you know, 
what he had to say about his guys would actually be extremely enticing and, and hard to turn down. But it's, it's a really easy reason with the tradition of the school and, and him at the helm of why uh, guys fall in love with that program. Yeah, for sure. This is a very interesting. I always, I've always wondered this. I play. I don't know if for those of you don't know. Played college basketball in Indiana. Grace at the NAI level. Totally different level. Much, much lower. Still good quality basketball, but obviously not dealing with any any NBA talent per se. But I always wondered if I was recruited at that level and took those visits, how much differently would I look at schools? Because fair warning, I'll just say, as from a fan perspective, I am a Kentucky disliker very much so so but that's what's funny about this is i think in this situation if i'm a top recruit and i'm putting everything into perspective so this evening is going down to as far as being close to home so family can come and watch consistently going to a guy like you said i know has good relationship like wants to be more than just a basketball player and then i also looked at it like this if i'm a top recruit and I'm, I'm most likely, obviously, I am if I'm getting offers to both these schools. If my main goal is to get to the NBA, not that Gonzaga have guys in the Kentucky has shown better than anyone that Coach Cal makes that happen uh, and has the right people and resources around to, to make that happen. So as hard as this decision is for me and for thinking I would never, ever choose Kentucky – I think I actually would go with Kentucky in this situation for those reasons. Maybe I overthought that. and Maybe you weren't even thinking about half of those situations. But from looked at from going when I was going on my own visits, I think I would actually show the favor to Kentucky. And also, that's, a, that's why I said I always wonder what – because what my thoughts would be if I actually visited those type of schools because I'm sure I have a totally different views of those schools that maybe I don't like as – than if I actually went there and looked and walked around the school. Uh, so I'd go with Yeah, I completely agree with that. Having an insider's perspective, day-to-day relations, being in that life, you know, it's it's a huge difference from what we perceive from from our point of view. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'm never going to knock a guy for picking a situation that they feel is best for them in their career and their development. So, you know, wish wish everybody the best. But your, your question, man, is definitely making me – uh, fulfill a dream here, getting to pick my school. <laughs> <laughs> um, my my last one for you, uh, it deals partly with a team that I believe we both picked for the final four this year. Uh, my national champion, Florida, you know, has had some issues this year. But do you feel that Maryland or Florida has a chance to go deeper in March at this point? Hmm. Well, I I will say I did have Florida in my final four at the beginning of the year, and I did not have Maryland. And I think I am going to stick to that at this point, as much as it goes against the rankings that performed so far of the schools. Uh, I think Florida has the has all the right pieces. Maryland does as well. But I think Florida has. The, the best post player, Cowan's probably the best guard in the situation. But I think Florida, with the mix of returners and with Blackshear, when he gets – I think he I think they're still trying to figure things out over there at Florida. And obviously, as all teams are, but them more than anyone. But I think also being in the SEC, as the SEC definitely is growing as a conference. I think it is not as tough as the Big Ten as far as schedule-wise. So I think Florida will be able to have a few games where they can still kind of – figure things out in the game. So I'll take Florida. It's not by much. It's one of those things kind of that you just said, probably around the like 45, 55 in favor of Florida. But I'm going to, I'm going to stick with my guns and stick with Florida to have more of a run. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Uh, they've been playing better offensively as of late and their defense has been, you know, superior for a large part of the season. Uh, you know, I, I desperately want to give Mike White a caller. I wish I had ask him why he doesn't let these guys run a little more up-tempo offense. Um, you know, letting Trey Mann or 
Andrew Nebhard and, and Scotty Lewis run the open floor have so much more athleticism over, you know, essentially almost every team except maybe Kentucky in that conference. Uh, and would allow to, you know, drastically climb back the ranking uh, and change a lot of people's perceptions of this team. Uh, it's really baffling how this team has been managed offensively thus far and, is, is, you know, not playing to their strengths at all. So I, I'm still going to hold to that and, and say they have more potential to do it. But, uh, you know, uh, I hope we're both they actually show some growth in, in moving towards that. For sure. One last quick one to round us out here. My Duke hatred coming in heavily on this one. Actually, I don't want to say hey. I don't hate anyone. A more strong dislike in Kentucky. I, I maybe a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> last one to end us off here with a bang. Quick answer. More of a dick while they were at Duke. Grayson Allen or JJ Redick? In in terms of who I like. No, who no who was more of a dick at Duke? Oh, okay. Grayson uh, Allen or JJ Redick? Yeah, Grayson Allen. I don't, I don't remember JJ Redick ever tripping people multiple times in a game and then acting like he didn't do anything. Yeah, Grayson Allen, one hundred percent. And at least Redick's had a decent NBA career. I know Grayson's still younger, but Grayson Allen was out to hurt people. Don't have any of that here. Tar Heel Nate. Peace. <laughs> Peace. Thank <laughs> you.